0: If you're a guest here this morning, thanks for being here with us this morning. My name's Stuart McCrave, the joy of serving on staff as one of the pastors as well, and it's a delight to be able to bring you God's Word this morning. Got got a couple of books I'm going to put before you. One is, at first, is the uh, Isaiah Scripture Journal. Every time we're going through a book of the Bible, we kind of put these out. Um, They're at the Welcome Center. Small donation. I think it just covers cost. The, the deal with these is that on one side there's the scripture and on the other side there's an opportunity to take notes so uh, we're just entering now into the second half of Isaiah um, so there's the journals, two other books that are free one is Praying the Bible uh, you'll find this at the uh, Welcome Center commend that to you. And the other, I think, that's fitting for the sermon this morning is uh, Gentle and Lowly, the Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And you'll find uh, ample copies. uh, If you go out to the foyer, uh, you'll see bookshelves on the right um, top shelf. uh, Lots of copies there for that. So, Gentle and Lowly. Well, we are continuing... In Isaiah 40, last week we uh, looked at the first 11 verses. This week we're going to finish chapter 40. So if you'll, if you'll get to Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to start with verse 12. And uh, this is a bit slowed down from where we were uh, in the... Well, the last time that we were really in Isaiah, if if you were here for the first part, we were doing multiple chapters at a time to kind of get the big picture and the themes, and now we're kind of slowing down here. And so we're going to look at Isaiah 40, 12 through 31 this morning. Isaiah is prophesying to God's people who are exiled in Babylon, and by this time it's been decades, and they are on the edge of despair and hopelessness, living in exile, living away from home, living in this fallen and broken world comes with struggles, temptations, temptations to disbelieve, even the most fundamental truths about God is God good? And if He is, why isn't he acting? Is he not acting because he can't? Is he, is he not strong enough? Is he faithful? Does he love me? Does, does he want to save me? And then chapter 40 breaks into the darkness like the dawning of light with prophetic words of comfort and hope and assurance. And these words are for us as well. If you are trusting in Jesus, then the New Testament describes you as well as a sojourner and exile. This is not your home. You are now, by faith in Jesus, a citizen of heaven. And so in similar and dissimilar ways, we we can relate. We can relate. If you've lived long enough in the pain and the struggle and the heartache of life, we can relate to these types of questions. And so the, the truths that Isaiah's is going to be communicating to us in these verses this morning, they're, they're for us as well. In Isaiah 40, 12 through 31, here, here's the big idea. God assures his weary exiled people that he can rescue them by proclaiming two comforting truths about his power. If, if last week, in the first 11 verses, God was effectively answering the question, will you, do you want to save us, the answer is, yes. Now it's effectively answering, yeah, but can you? Can you save us? That, that's, that's what he's going to be answering in these verses. God assures his weary exiles that he can rescue them, and he does that by reminding them of two comforting truths about his power. Well, let's look at verses 12 through 16. This is God's incomparable power to save. This is really verses 12 through 26. God's incomparable power to save. Here's the big idea. There is nothing nor no one like our God. Therefore, he can save because he has incomparable power to save. Now, when we talk about God being incomparable, we're talking about God's transcendence. God's transcendence means that he is separate from and greater than his creation and is in no way dependent on creation. Now, there are two realities of God's incomparability in verses 12 through 26. The first is God is the incomparable creator. This is verses 12 through 20. Let's let's start reading verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And who has marked off the heavens with a span? And who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? And who has weighed the mountains in a scales and in the hills in a balance? And the answer is none but God. God is here likened as a, a cosmic carpenter who has Created the whole universe and our world. And he's described in terms that would have been familiar in this ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, culture and in commerce for measuring and weighing. But here, God is described as measuring the world's oceans in the palm of his hand. And he's described as marking off the universe by the length of his hand. And he's described as weighing the earth and the mountains as if on a scale. As one commentator says, it was no more difficult to make the world than it was for a storekeeper to cut a piece of cloth or weigh out goods for customers. Our cosmos is enormous. The farthest that we have gone is the moon. And yet, cosmologists tell us that our galaxy, the Milky Way, is about 53,000 light years across. And our observable universe is billions of light years across. And yet, in comparison to the transcendence of our God, it is frail and small. God effortlessly created the universe And our world. And in verses 13 through 14, we're told that he did it independently. Let's read it. Who has measured, advised the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counselor? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is no one. In Babylonian religion, the creator God Marduk had to. Consult about creation with the EA, the all wise. But not so with God. He needed no advisor, no consultation board. God has never nor will ever learn. As one pastor noted, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? The the exiles are to be reminded that since God needed no consultation to create the universe, he therefore needs no help in orchestrating a rescue plan for them. In the end, God's rescue plan is accomplished in a crucified Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, who in 1 Corinthians one twenty-four, is described as the power of God and the wisdom of God. God effortlessly and independently created the universe he is transcendent over his creation at large and over the creatures that live on this, lo- on this rock. Let's read verse 15. Behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. In comparison to our transcendent God, the the, the nations are like a a drop splashing out of a a full bucket. They're, They're described in comparison to God's transcendence as nothingness. And empty, literally uncreated before Him. Now, it's not that the nations are counted as nothing by God. As we'll see moving forward in Isaiah, God values the nations. They're people created in His image. Instead, what is being communicated here is that in comparison to God's transcendence, they're considered as nothing before Him. In comparison to God, Assyria and its gods, Babylon and its gods, Persia and its gods fade into nothingness. I mean, even if the nations wanted to present an offering to appease God's wrath, they they could not sufficiently do so. Lebanon, known for its vast cedar woods, would not have enough wood to put on the altar. Or no, all the animals found in those woods would be enough for a sacrifice. Weary exiles are being reminded that God is the incomparable creator. And to bring this truth home, Isaiah concludes in verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him? If God can't be compared to creation or creatures, the the nations, then to whom can God be compared to? You see the temptation for these weary exiles who are just immersed in the pagan culture is to think of God as just, just another one amongst many. And so in verse 19, Isaiah frames idolatry in ridiculous ways to show its foolishness. This is, this is poetic ridicule. Who we liken God to? Verse 19, an idol? Oh, a craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. And he, who is too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move, that will not get knocked over. Shall the uncreated creator of all things be compared to something that was created by human hands? No. Our God is the incomparable creator. Therefore, weary exiles are to know that he has power to save. The second reality that we see in 12 through 26 is God is the incomparable ruler. Incomparable ruler. Starting with verse 21 Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told from you from the beginning? Have you not understood but from the foundations of the earth? And yes, God's people know exactly what is being told them, but, but listen, we often don't need to be told something new, but be to be reminded of something true. And so the thing that they're struggling with and seemingly forgetting is verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. One of the most fundamental truths from the beginning is that God is the incomparable sovereign ruler over the universe. We get three descriptions of God's incomparable rule. One, God sits enthroned, above the earth. And the grandeur and the greatness of his reign makes the people appear like grasshoppers. Two, God stretches out the heavens like someone might stretch out a net over a tent. God is so great, so enormous, that it takes the entire universe to be his throne room. And three, God brings princes to Nothing and makes early rulers as if uncreated. Man, Isaiah's looking dead at the kings of Assyria and Babylon. And then speaking of earthly rulers, Isaiah explains the ease by which God reigns over them. Verse 24, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble in Isaiah's life and ministry at this point he has seen many a king come and go three kings in Judah four kings in Assyria and various kings in Israel Egypt Babylon and the other nations and and more will come and go but not Yahweh and what's more he reigns over all of them he's where he exiles or be reminded that God is the incomparable ruler Now Isaiah similarly concludes this reality, starting in verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. The title of the Holy One presses into God's purity and his his otherness. This is pressing into God's transcendence. So to whom shall we compare this transcendently pure ruler? Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now this comparison isn't isn't really to the stars. This is in comparison to the Babylonian worship of the stars. Again, the temptation was for for these weary exiles who are immersed in this pagan culture to start practicing the religion of these pagans and start worshiping. But Isaiah, God says that these are not worthy of worship. These are not independent gods. They are stars and they are creations. What's more, they're described as brought out by God like a host, like an army under orders. And further still, God knows each one, calling them by name. In fact, they're all accounted for under his rule. So two realities in these verses that are to reshape our thinking in the wariness of exile. God is the incomparable creator, and he is the incomparable Ruler, both realities are meant to assure God's people that He has power to save them. Amid the the struggle of living in this fallen and broken world, it, it is it is tempting to disbelieve even the most fundamental truths of God. In in the in the fog of Hopelessness. We get lost in our thoughts. We get wrapped up in our feelings. I mean there are moments where our our struggles, right? Our situations, they they seem they seem way bigger than any other reality. I mean I I get that. I don't know about you. Maybe you're in a struggle right now. None of us know the future. Isaiah's certainly not here to help us with that. But maybe you're stuck. Maybe you get the idea of being stuck in something. You're stuck in a bad situation. Work, home, relationship. You're stuck in a chronic health issue. You're stuck in a repetitive sin pattern that seems to be inescapable. You're stuck in shame or guilt. Stuck in bitterness or regret. Where he exile, Isaiah says the the hope for rescue. The hope for rescue is found by having a faith-filled glimpse of our transcendent God. You want, you want hope to get unstuck? You want hope for change? Isaiah says we need a, we need a vision of our transcendent God. I think Most of us spend uh, the great majority of our time inside man-made spaces. We spend a lot of our time in, in four walls and spend a lot of time thinking about our, our problems and our situations and, and this can all have sort of a an effect that can make us feel like we're on our own. We're left to our own resources to figure things out. But it's not true. It's not true. I mean, let me let me encourage you that the next time you feel you feel stuck, and maybe this is you now, but don't do this now. Maybe the next time you feel stuck, go outside. Look at creation, look at the nighttime sky and worship your transcendent God who created it all. I, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, maybe, maybe you have, but, but I can imagine standing at its edge gives us a, a glimpse of not only our smallness, but of God's transcendence and and yet, I, and yet I say that, and in comparison to God's transcendence, the Grand Canyon is but an insignificant crack that gets unnoticed as God steps over our galaxy. Nevertheless... I think Isaiah would tell us at the edge of the grand canyon of God's transcendence, beholding his greatness and his power, new perspective is gained about our heartache and our pain and our struggles and indeed hope emerges. Brothers and sisters, you are not alone in your struggle. In fact, God is greater than your struggle, greater than your heartache, greater than your feelings. Trillions of stars attest to the transcendent God that can save you. Your God died to save you from your worst problem of your sin. In this side of the cross, we know what the power of God for salvation is. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has incomparable power to save. And if God can powerfully save you from the wrath to come by forgiving you of your sins, then he can powerfully save you from any situation that you have here and now. And take heart-weary exiles. God can rescue you because he has incomparable power to save. So there's the first comforting truth about God's power. The second is in verses 27 through 31. Here's the big idea. God God offers his abundant and unfailing power In exchange for your weakness and weariness, God can save and He has inexhaustible power to strengthen. Now, in these verses, Isaiah turns from transcendence to imminence. God's imminence means He is present and personally involved within His creation, especially with His covenant people. Prophecy, like Isaiah 40, the Bible, is a witness to God's eminence. God has condescended in human language so that his people would know him, know what he's done for them, and what he's calling them to do and be by his grace. Well, our eminent God. Let, let, let's look at the text, starting with verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right hand is disregarded by my God. For the first time, the the questions are put in the singular. What do we mean now? We mean God's getting personal. He's talking to you and you and you and you and you. God's eminence means he's personal. In fact, these questions are filled with precious covenantal reminders of who these exiles are and who this God is in relation to them. The names Jacob, Israel, and the Lord ought to remind these exiles that this is their God, Yahweh. This is the God who who sought them out and made them his own. This is their God and they are his people. Now, mercifully, Yahweh doesn't remind them of their sin that put them in exile. Instead, to give them hope, God reminds them who their personal covenant God is. Verses 28 through 29, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is, and then we're given five attributes, five attributes, the Lord is the everlasting God, no beginning and no end. The Lord is the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He has untiring power. Number four, his understanding is unsearchable. In verse 29, the last one, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Not only does God have untiring power, but he is the giver of his power to the weak, And weary. The the, the key to these verses, verses 27 through 31, and we see it through its repetition, is this this concept of faint and be and grow weary. Listen, God's people and their problems are not lost on God. He, He doesn't want to be far off, He wants to be in the middle of their lives. He wants to be in the thick of it, amid their frailty. And what's their frailty? What's their weakness? Well, like us, there are many, but the greatest is faith. They're on the edge of despair, and their fatigue is spiritual. Now, God doesn't want to merely be amid their frailty. He wants to bring about Renewal. And knowing there is constant temptation to look inward for renewal for hope for change for strength, there's a warning given in verse 30, pressing into experience, we read, even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Y'all you know young folks seem to have endless energy. We got what for ourselves, and it is just a desperation to make sure they are tired by the end of the day. But throughout the day it seems like it's never going to end. You know how that is. And here's the warning, the best of human vitality still exhausts. But with God, but with God there is limitless power to strengthen his people. Verse 31, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and shall not be weary they shall walk and shall not faint renewal is offered to the weak and weary but there's more here Re- renewal renewal literally means to exchange or replace so listen god doesn't merely god doesn't merely renew our Own strength that will invariably fail, rather, God exchanges our weakness for his soaring, running, pressing on, limitless strength. There's a catch though. To receive renewal, we must wait for the Lord. So God's condition for these weary exiles is for them to keep waiting. Well, yes and no. They are not to kill time and just watch the clock run. Rather, waiting is an active confidence, a confident hope and assured trust in the expectant faithfulness of the Lord. Waiting is an active confidence in the expectant faithfulness of the Lord to do what he says he will do in his means, in his methods, and in his Timing. Listen, renewal is not found in us, in our own personal resolve, our own willing. It's not found from without. Renewal is paradoxically found in waiting on God. So what does it look like to receive strength by hoping in the Lord, especially when appearances seem to destroy all hope? Well, Paul writes about Abraham strengthening faith in God in Romans 4, 18 through 21. It's on the screens, follow with me. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. In other words, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, promised, so shall your offspring be. That is, your offspring will be more numerous than the stars in the sky, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So, appearances meant to destroy all hope. But no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, as so shall your offspring be. But Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And and here's what that looked like. Here's what it looked like. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Two realities. Two realities. Abraham's situation, hoping, Waiting on God is not a diminishment of what we're going through. Two realities. There was Abraham's old age and Sarah's barrenness, and there was God and his promise. His, his situation, that could give rise to weary and weak faith, but God can give rise to strength and Faith. Despite the appearance of hopelessness, Abraham held confidence in the expectant faithfulness of God. Oh, come on. We, we regularly face what seems like hopeless situations. We, we regularly face Weary and weak faith. And and our flesh, our flesh is going to try to convince us to just dig a little deeper to find that last drop of strength in the bottom of our personal resolve. Or our flesh is going to try to convince us to to turn to false refuges like food or drink or just pure distraction or entertainment or sex or porn. Each like sugar-coated poison pills. Oh, they might... They might taste good at first, but oh, they will invariably do damage to our soul. None of this is the waiting on God that we're called to. Faith-filled waiting is the ongoing admission that I can't, but God can. Weary and weak exiles As New Covenant believers, we we live, I'll check this, we live in the reality of what this promised exchange for power was all about. Through faith in Jesus, God's inexhaustible power resides within you through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. It's not your power, it's not your strength, it's God's. And it's there. We can call upon him to strengthen us in our weak times. When we are weak, we are strong through Christ who lives in us. Listen, in Jesus, we can be fully convinced of God's faithfulness because all the promises of God find their yes in him. Later in Isaiah, we will will see very soon, in fact, that God promises to send a servant who will who will put an end to the greater spiritual exile of his people. And in Jesus' life and ministry, he inaugurates the end of this exile. And in his death and resurrection, the the sin that caused the exile from the presence of God is fully and finally dealt with. God has not made one promise that Jesus hasn't secured by his blood. Let me me do one of the Isaiah things. Have you not heard? Do, Do you not know? Listen to this old truth. One day Jesus promised to return to defeat all of God's enemies and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth where there'll be no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying anymore. But until that ultimate cosmic salvation comes or until we go home to be with the Lord, we're called to have confidence in the expectant faithfulness of our God and to know that he has inexhaustible power to strengthen us along the way. Come, Lord Jesus, come. This life of exile is tough. It's not easy. We don't have to fake it, play games, marginalize it. We live in a fallen and broken world. We have remaining sin still within us. Nothing is easy about this. There's temptation to disbelieve even the most fundamental truths about God. But in our darkness, God comes in his faithfulness, bringing words of comfort of hope and of assurance. God assures his weary exiles that he can rescue us by proclaiming two comforting truths about his power. Oh, take heart. God has incomparable power to save and God has inexhaustible power to strengthen. Let's pray. Holy Father, we do thank you for your mercy and grace to your people to not only speak these words of comfort and hope and assurance thousands of years ago, but to preserve them so that we, your people today, might hear them and rest in them and trust you. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to not walk out of here unchanged, but to walk out of here with full hearts, having a vision of your transcendent glory power, greatness, and a confident assurance that you are not far off, but you desire to be intimately with your people, exchanging our weakness with your power. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We love you. We thank you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.